0: So uh, we're going to be in the book of Exodus. We just finished a nine-month study of of, of Genesis, which was fantastic. I, I, I was just so impacted to to see God's character unfold in that book, where we learn about this Creator, this Promise Maker, this Relationship Builder in God. And and, and as we kick off this book of Exodus, and and um, we have this uh, we have this theme uh, that, uh, of, of liberation. And those of you that were at our teaching night on Friday, we kind of got a little bit of hint of what that was going to be. But you know, we're, we're going to learn so much more about God. We're going to see this promise maker become a promise keeper. And we're going to see this amazing, the amazing hand of God unfold in the lives of the Israelites and, and get the opportunity to, to kind of contemplate what that means uh, to our own lives uh, here in, in our time. Um, but we're going to be uh, primarily in, in uh, Exodus 1. And we'll dabble a little bit in Exodus 2. I promise not to spend too much time and, and take up the whole morning on that. But, but uh, nonetheless, why don't we just jump in and start reading. I'll be in verse 1. <clears throat> it says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Ishakar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. You know, it's, I think it's important as we start looking at Exodus. Exodus is, is, a, is, is a book written by Moses, and it's one of five books that, called the Pentateuch. Uh, exod, uh, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, they, and they, they, they make up a sort of a single story, right? And, and Moses is the author, and, and Moses starts off this passage... Listing the names of the sons of Jacob. And if you were to happen to turn over to Genesis 46 and look in verse 8, you'll see almost the exact same language that Moses uses to describe the actual account of the Israelites going into Egypt. And what Moses is doing here is he wants the reader to understand, I'm talking about the same people. All right. This isn't a new story. This is the same story, and this is about the descendants of Abram, and these are about God's people, the people of the promise. That's who he wants you to know that we're going to be reading about. It says uh, in verse 6, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Right away, as we start off in the book of Exodus, we see God keeping his promise. He told Abram in Genesis chapter 12, he said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, we see this struggle uh, for, for the struggle for, for Abram and, and Sarah to, to actually have a son. The struggle uh, for, for, the, for, for, the fa- for the family to just survive uh, all of the dangers and all of the different threats. But, but here we see, uh, as we open in the book of Exodus, God is true to his promises. And he has made them into a great nation. And verse 8 says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And, if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. You know That's such an ominous phrase, a, a new king to whom Joseph meant Nothing, and it's important for us to understand that it, ultimately the Israelites will have spent 430 years in, in Egypt between the time they went down until the time they're led out by Moses. And not only is there a new pharaoh or, or multiple new pharaohs, but you know, just an in, the, the entire political structure would would be changing during this time. Uh, I tend to think of Egypt, of ancient Egypt. There's, I got one picture of ancient Egypt. I see pyramids. I see paintings of people with funny hats and heavy eyeliner and they all stand like this and we think that's ancient Egypt right but but ancient Egypt was constantly changing just like all of the world is constantly changing throughout history and in fact some scholars think that that the pharaoh that that Joseph rose to prominence under was a, was a was a leader under what was called the Hyksos dynasty HYKSOS and and these were, these were foreign invaders to the land of Egypt. They took over and they, they established a dynasty there. And, and, it, and some believe that, it's disputed, but some believe that that, Joseph, that was Joseph's time. And that this time that we see now at the beginning of Exodus, that Hyksos dynasty had passed, had been overthrown. And, a, and, and native Egyptians, the Egyptian people had thrown them off and they were now ruling themselves. So this, this new pharaoh wasn't just new he he may have been a completely different flavor of ruler and the, the entire political system was different things changed um, and it, i don't want it's not a point of the lesson today but it's just something that we shouldn't let pass over us. you know we can't count on anything in this world I mean, we we we're, our life is full of people making promises to us politicians g- bosses teachers our own family our own loved ones but they can't keep promises only God can keep promises, only God is constant, even if these people could keep promises they 're not, they're not going to be here forever. only God will be here forever it 's just a, just a little vignette there. you know Pharaoh was afraid that they were going to become so numerous that they would take over the country. The, the word in the NIv says he 's afraid that they 'll leave the country, but the Hebrew word um, it 's not just leave it's, it's sort of a it means ascension. He was afraid that they would become a problem and that they would Potentially turn on the Egyptians, maybe ally with another country. He was worried. You know, leaders worry, uh, and, and Pharaoh was worried, and so he comes up with a plan. And it says in verse eleven: So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So the Israelites being enslaved in Egypt is a familiar story for all of us, whether whether you learned about it in Sunday school, or if you're old like me, you learned about it from Charlton Heston. If you're young, you learned about it from, from the Prince of Egypt. But, but we, we all understand the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians. I think it's important for us to understand that the initial drive behind this enslavement was population control. You know, Pharaoh was afraid that these people they, they were growing at this alarming supernatural rate and, and it was it was scary them. So so the purpose of slavery wasn't just to exploit them, the way slavery typically does, and, and I'm sure he was enjoying the exploitation of them, but he was trying to slow them down. He was trying to maybe even, you know, crush. Their, their, their future, right, as a people. If you think about what slavery might have looked like, and, and Moses goes out of his way, he repeats the word harsh. He talks about ruthlessness. He talks about bitterness. You know, slavery, we, we tend to think hard work is good for you, right? But only if it's in kind of a more balanced approach, right? If, if you're being worked as a slave, you're, you're not getting rest. You, the, the labor is crushing you. It's impacting your health. And, and you know, people... People can only flourish in the right environment. You know, you, you, you know we know this when we, when we study the ecosystems, we know that, that a species will not flourish if it's overly oppressed, if it's not healthy, if it doesn't have food sources, if it's, if it's overly stressed. As humans, we, we have technology that sort of shields us from the reality of the world, but in ancient times, it would have held true to humans as well. You need, you need a healthy environment in order to flourish. And that's what Pharaoh was thinking. He's thinking, I'm going to make it so hard. They're going to work so hard. I'm going to separate the men and the women. The men will be off working in one place. The women will be working somewhere else. There's going to be long days and long nights. They're not going to have time or energy to do the things necessary to promulgate a race. You know, you, you, you kids in school, the government teaches you that, about that in, in health class, what it takes to, to populate. But... You know, they wouldn't have been able to do that, the Pharaoh's thinking. And and, and likewise, these were shepherds. They would have had their own agriculture. They would have had their own sort of economy to take care of. But their slavery would have taken them away from that. This was all designed to slow down their growth. But, of course, it didn't work. It didn't work. It says that the more they were oppressed, the more they grew. So Pharaoh steps it up. It says in verse 15, it says, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see the baby as a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're more vigorous, and they give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. You know, he, uh, Pharaoh steps it up. He, he, he started with somewhat of a passive-aggressive uh, approach to population control. And then he, then, he, then he ratcheted it up to killing by proxy. You know, I'm we're not, not going to kill them myself, but I'm going to enlist these Hebrew midwives. It says the Hebrew midwives feared God, and they didn't do it. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting that uh, when he called them to account, he said, come here, I want to talk to you. Why didn't you do what I told you to do? And, and, and they say, well, Hebrew women are, are more vigorous than the Egyptian women. And, and it, it, it strikes me as odd. It's like, wait a second, you, you've been given a command by Pharaoh... You disobey it. You get called into account. Surely your life is hanging in the balance. And the excuse you come up with is to insult Egyptian women. Okay. But, but if, we, if, if you look into the language a little bit, um, the word for vigorous that, that the Bible uses, is, the Hebrew word is haye, H-A-Y-E-H. And it, it does mean vigorous. It means strong. It also means active. And, and it may not be a reflection so much on individual women. But but rather is the culture, the cultural differences. So, so like to illustrate in our own time, there's lots of different ways to deliver a baby. You'll, you'll talk to one woman who will say, oh, I, I didn't even go to the hospital. I, I did it at home. I wanted it to be all natural, no drugs, you know, no doctors. And, and that's the way we did it. Whereas you'll meet other women who will say, no, I'm going to take advantage of everything available to me. Right? I'm, I, want, I want the doctors. I want the, the hospital. I want everything to be nice and sterilized. I want this drug and that drug and this shot. And, 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 you know, there, there there's no, there's no, there, there, there's nothing to be, there's no uh, judging there. It's just two different ways to get to the same result. And likewise, you know, when I, when I was young, there was this fad. Women were having children in pools or in bathtubs. It, 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 they were to be born underwater, which, you know, whatever, right? Um, but... But you know what we may what we might be reading about here is is the, the Egyptians may have had a culture where I, I'm having contractions, call the midwife, and, and, and we'll we'll do our best to wait till the midwife gets gets here to do this thing. Whereas the Hebrew women, their culture may have been more active. They may have taken a more active role. It wasn't necessarily that they were stronger or better, but they may have been the type that said, Oh, I'm having contractions, get mom. Get my sister, we're going to do this thing, and then we're going to move on. You know, God, God sort of gave these Hebrew midwives this out, right? And I, I don't think they made this up. I don't think they lied. They, they weren't going to kill the babies because they feared God. But God provided them this truthful excuse, um, and somehow it worked. Uh, it, I don't understand how it is that, other than the grace of God, that Pharaoh didn't just kill them. Uh, but it says that God... Blessed them with families of their own. And I think something else we need to consider here is that, you know, the, the, the Israelites were proliferating like crazy. Population growth, everybody's having babies. But, but he makes a point to say these women were given families of their own for their, because they feared God. And it's likely that in this culture, midwifery may have been a, a draw to uh, infertile women, right? So you, if, if you think about a high population growth culture, you know, there'd be a lot of work for midwives and, and midwifery is not a nine to five job you, you get a knock on the door at 2 a.m and hey mary down the streets having a baby you need to come you can't say well you know my kid's daycare doesn't open till seven um so i'll be down at seven-thirty. if you can just wait no you have to go you know so a midwife may have not really been able to to care for their own family and as such women who found themselves unable to have their own kids may have gravitated Towards this profession and that's probably what we're seeing here when we see that God blessed them with families of their own we'll finish out chapter 1 in verse 22 where Pharaoh ratchets things up a third time and says then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile but let every girl live just incredibly barbaric. Right? It's, it's beyond anything that we can understand, right? And I think we have to... Be, the Bible doesn't explicitly say it, but I think we should believe that, that this was actually carried out. Because we know in chapter 2, we see that Moses is born and his parents are hiding him. They were hiding him from something. And it was probably this this act of barbarism. But, you know, another just interesting thought, uh, the. the the Egyptians, everything was a god in Egypt. Pharaoh was a god, the sun was a god, and the Nile was a god. You know, The Nile was the only thing that made Egypt livable. It, it would flood and, and make the soil fertile, and this was soil that would have otherwise been infertile. So they, they saw the Nile as a life-giver and also as a life-taker. Like any body of water, it was dangerous. If you fell into it, who knows what might happen. So the, these Egyptians, as they were throwing babies into the Nile... You may have been assuaging their conscience, telling themselves, I'm not killing this baby, I'm just sacrificing it to the Nile God. Right? And if the Nile God chooses to take its life, who am I to question that? If the Nile God chooses to spare it, so be it. It's an interesting reflection on how we can justify our actions and how we can uh, allow circumstances and, and and, and, and other uh, things to, to to shape how we actually act despite our ideals, and we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, later on. But <clears throat> before we go into chapter two, I want to I want to just kick off a couple of points. And my first point is, on, you got to serve somebody. You know, in verse thirteen, uh, it, it 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 talks about how the the Israelites were enslaved, and and it says uh, towards the end. Um, it says that, and, and, and the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. That word worked in the Hebrew is, is abad, A-B-A-D. And interestingly, it's the same word that is used in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, when God is talking to Moses through the burning bush. And, and I'm, I just want to read that real quick, and I'm cheating. I shouldn't be skipping into next week's sermon. But um, in, in verse twelve of chapter three, when God's talking to Moses, this is all familiar to us, and, and, and at the end of, of chapter twelve in the second half it says, When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. That word worship is the same Hebrew word as the word for work. It's Abat. Right? So the same so Moses takes the same word to describe the harsh, awful slavery in Egypt he uses a, the same exact word to describe the worship that will be given to God. And, and I want to point out, you know, when I think of this morning's lesson, I think of it sort of as a launch point to what our entire study of the book of Exodus. We talk a lot about liberation. And, and, and I think it's important for us to get our heads right as to what liberation is. And you know, in, in the West, maybe specifically here in America... We think of liberation, we think of freedom, we think of liberty, and, of course, Americans, we think we've got the market cornered on that, right? We think we're the the authors of of liberty and freedom. And and the way liberty and freedom usually play out in, in, in my mind as American is usually something along the lines of I get to do what I want, when I want, how I want, with whom I want, and if I don't want, well, then I won't. And I understand, we all understand there's laws and there's regulations, and, and we see those as sort of the boundaries. But if we play within those bounds, I get to do what I want. I won't violate your rights. You don't violate mine. But otherwise, I do what I want, and I don't do what I don't want. And, you know, that's, that's fine, I suppose, in terms of geopolitics or socioeconomics. I don't have a problem with that. I believe in small government and laissez-faire management, but, but that is absolutely not at all. What God's liberation is. Alright. The the liberation that God provided to the Israelites was not. I will free you from Egypt. So that you can go do as you please. It was not. I will release you from Pharaoh. So that you can go out into the world and be like the other nations. Do the detestable things that they do. Uh, worship their idols. It was never that. It was so that you would you would come and worship God. Exodus and its liberation is about. ...being taken from the ownership of Pharaoh and placed in the ownership of God. You know, God frequently throughout the book of Exodus says, you will be my people. You know, and and we, we naturally and rightly think of that in terms of relationship. And, and we should. You know, like my wife. You know, she's not your wife, she's my wife. You know, but, but, but in the case of God and the Israelites, there's, there is a sense of ownership. You are my people. And, and you're going to serve me. You used to serve your former owners. Now you will serve me. In, in the book of Exodus, the first 18 chapters is all about escaping from Egypt. But then in verse, in chapter 19, we find the the Israelites at Sinai. and And God starts giving the law. He starts giving the covenant. He starts talking about how you will serve and how you will be different from the other nations. Because... The promise that he gave to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12 was not just that he would be a great nation, but that he would be a great nation that would bless the world. And, and how could they bless the world if they were no different than the world? How could they bless the world if they were not in service to God? You know, we, we too have been rescued from, from our own slave masters through the blood of Christ. It doesn't take a lot of mental gymnastics to parallel what God did for the Egyptians to what he did for us in Christ. We had masters. I served my masters. I served lust. I served uh, alcoholism, drug addiction. When I became older, I refined my masters and, and started to serve greed and materialism and, and my impulses. And, and I, I didn't just serve them. I worshipped them. And you say, how, how did you worship them? Well, I, I sacrificed a lot to those masters. I sacrificed time, money, relationships, my health. I sacrificed my youth to alcohol. I served. And God frees us from those masters through the blood of Christ. And we too are not freed to go frolic in the world and live like everybody else. We're, we're, we're freed so that, so that we can live out our lives of service to Christ. That's what we were made for. That's how we'll find true fulfillment. Not in, not in hedonistic self-indulgence. But, but in serving God, in, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, We are God's handiwork. We're God's handiwork, not our own. And, and we were created to do the good works that were prepared for us in advance. So while I was serving the gods of sin, the true God was preparing work for me to be done. And that's, that's the fulfillment of my life. That's who I am to serve. Right. That is who I am to serve. That's how I will truly find liberation. Not just in my freedom, but in useful service to the one who frees me. Amen? Amen? Next point. Uh, who do you fear? Let me take a drink. You know, the, 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 the unquestionable heroes of this chapter are the midwives. Um, we, we, we get to meet them and we get to know them by name. Their names are Shifra and Puah. I hope I'm pronouncing those right, but you know, um, it says that they they feared God and they did not kill these children. They were ordered by the most powerful man on earth to to kill these young boys when they're born. These young boys would have been would have become the warriors that that Pharaoh was afraid of, right? They would continue to uh, increase the population um, but, but by 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 killing these boys. Pharaoh had hope of, of limiting the population, but, but, but these women didn't do it. And you think, well, why didn't they do it? Was it, was it because they had, a, they had a high moral standard? Uh, was it because they had a strong conscience? Was it because they believed strongly that, that killing uh, newborn sons of the Hebrews was wrong? Well, that's probably true. They probably did have that conviction. But, you know, most people would have that conviction. You know, if you would have talked to, to the average Egyptian woman during that day, say, hey, why not just taking a poll? You know, what do you think about midwives killing newborn children? They would have said, no, you can't do that. We don't do that. That's not, that's not the way to go. You know, everybody has a conscience. Everybody has a sense of right and wrong. Atheists have morals, right? But the, the difference between the fear of God... Because the Bible says it was because they feared God that they didn't kill the children. It's not their righteousness that gets lifted up. It's not their high morals that get lifted up. It's not their principles. It's their fear of God that that, that gets them lifted up. That, That says they behaved righteously because they feared God. The difference between the fear of God and your conscience is that your conscience is conditional. Your conscience will change. You know, you can, you can imagine a midwife saying, I'm a midwife, it's my job to bring life into the world, I would never kill one of my patient's newborn children. Well, that's fine in philosophy, but what happens when, when, a, when, a, when a variable is introduced? Like, oh, I don't know, the pharaoh telling you you have to do it. You know, Derek was talking about when the storms hit, and when the storms hit his brick house, you know, and the bricks shift, you know, our conscience shifts, right? But but God doesn't shift. The fear of God doesn't shift. And and you, you you can see this in your own life. We all we read our Bibles and we we you know we we we, 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 we read Ephesians five and we say, well, yeah, I have to love my wife and and love her the way uh, uh, the, the way Christ loved the church and lay my life down for. Her. And I will do that unless you know unless I'm not feeling it today, unless I'm tired, unless she's not acting in a, in a loving, in a, in a, you know, whatever, you know what I'm talking about and why? They say, oh, I'm going to submit to my husband and I'm going to respect my husband that's, a, that's an ideal, that's a principle, I'm a Christian, that's how I do and I absolutely submit to my husband, when? If, right? Children obey their parents if, when they're looking Fathers raise their children up in the way of the Lord. Sometimes. Right. You know, the fear of God, though, has no conditions. There are no if, when, but with the fear of God. And, and you know, the fact of the matter is we all fear something. And that fear drives us. You know, if, you, if, you fear, uh, if you fear, for instance, the loss of reputation. <laughs> if you're one of those people like me who actually thinks you have a reputation... Um, But but if if you fear the loss of your reputation, that that fear will cause you to do things that are not God's will, right? You'll never share your faith, really, if you're afraid of your reputation, if you're afraid of what people think of you. But if you fear God, it will trump your fear of, of anything else. Pharaoh was a god. in in the culture of the day, you know, and, and surely the midwives feared him. I I don't, I don't want to lift them up and say, Oh yeah, I don't care. I'm not afraid of the Pharaoh. Sure. They were afraid, but they feared God more. They feared God more and they were more interested, not in the temporary hardships that the Pharaoh could put on them, but more so in the eternal judgment of God. And they feared him. And it says that, that because they feared him, God gave them families of their own. In, uh, in Proverbs chapter 22, in verse 4, it says, Humility is the fear of the Lord, and its wages are riches, honor, and life. You know, this is what God gives us when, the, when His fear drives us, when His fear is the ultimate controlling factor uh, in, in, in our lives, when, when pleasing Him becomes our most important uh, point on our moral compass. You know, and you think about what God did for the midwives. He certainly did give them the wages of life, honor, and riches. He spared their life. Surely the Pharaoh would have killed them if not for the hand of God. He gave them honor. Their names are in the Bible. Pharaoh's name is not mentioned in the Bible. He's the most powerful man on earth, arguably, at the time. And God doesn't care what his name is. Moses didn't bother to mention it. It wasn't noteworthy. These women are noteworthy. We know their names. That's honor. And he gave them riches, and you might say, well, hold on a second, I don't, I don't see any money-changing hand here. <laughs> uh, but you've got to imagine a, a, a barren woman who hasn't been able to have kids, but surely must love children if she's, been, if she's able to stand up to the hardships of midwifery. To find out after years that you're pregnant, that you're going to have a family. You know, that would be worth more to them than all the gold in Egypt, right? Right? So, we too have to let the fear of the Lord drive us. It has to trump our conscience. It, 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 ha, it has to be more important than our moral compass that's always shifting based on the storms that pound against our house. God will reward us for that fearful obedience to Him. You know, as we, as we kind of look to close out, I'd I, I indi- indicated that I wanted to spend a little time in chapter 2. And, you know, chapter 2 starts off a very familiar story. We meet Moses. We learn about his parents hiding him. We, we learn about him being put in the, the basket or the ark, right? And Pharaoh's daughter finds him, and, uh, and he gets rescued. He's raised in that environment, and he, he ultimately has to flee uh, Egypt. This all happens really quick in chapter 2. Boom, 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 right? But, but at the end of chapter 2, in verse 23, and, and if you would, please turn there with me. God brings the narrative back to the Israelites in Egypt. And in verse 23 of chapter 2, it says, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so, looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And when I read this, it makes me think of this... This long period of silence from God during the four hundred or so years that the Israelites lived in Egypt, you know there was there was this four hundred year period you know in, 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 in Genesis we see God talking to his chosen people, we see him talking with Abraham, we see him talking with Jacob, we see him talking to Joseph even through his dreams, right, but then we don 't hear from God we don 't hear from him it's it's silent he 's working because he the, the promise is coming true. Children are being born. The nation's becoming great. But man, it's hard. Man, they're, they're, they're suffering. They're, they're suffering under the yoke of slavery. They're suffering under oppression. In chapter 3, which we'll probably do next week, God is going to explode into action. It's going to get loud. It's not going to be silent. It's not going to be unseen. It's going to be obvious. Right? But, but there's this 400-year period of silence that they, that they go through prior to that. And it, you know, I have to get a little nerdy, you know, it parallels well with the 400 years of silence between Malachi and the coming of Jesus, the, the, the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. 400 years, no prophecy, nobody's hearing from God. Horrible things are happening in, in, in Israel at this time. The Romans are coming to power, ruthless, cruel. The, the Sanhedrin comes to power within this priestly class, and it's It's corrupt. And we got the Herodians. They're sort of the kings of of Israel, but but really they're more allied with with the Romans. And and the the, the people of Israel, during this silence of God, must say, what is going on? But, But amazingly, that trifecta, the Romans and the Sanhedrin and the Herodians, they're the ones that would deliver Jesus to the cross, which caused our explosion, right? so that we could be liberated, so that we could be saved. When Jesus was raised... On, 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 on the third day, it was obvious. Now I understand the silence. Now I understand why this is happening. And as we read back in Exodus and we, we look at that 400 years of silence, we can say, now I get it. Now I understand. Now I understand. You know, and we we have our own periods of silence, right? We say, Where Where's God? Where's God? You know, and, and, from, and from reading chapter one, you know, I find myself tempted to just say, okay, God's silent, but but I'm going to serve, I'm going to persevere, I'm going to fear God, I'm going to do right, and, and someday he'll explode into action the way he explodes in, in Exodus chapter 3. And of course, someday we'll all be in heaven, and we'll be able to look back and understand why the silence. But, but I'm very convicted in, in, in verses 23 through 25, which I just read, because... It tells me that the connection between the silence of the 400 years and the explosive, visible, loud action of God, glorious action, amazing action, the connection between those two things was prayer. It says that the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. You know that? I'm not trying to, to send a message that, hey, you know, pray and God will do whatever you ask. That, that's not what I'm trying to get at here. I, I'm just simply pointing out that prayer is part of this amazing story of liberation. Crying out to God is part of this amazing story of liberation. And You know, for me, and I think maybe some of you can relate, we're, we're a very active movement, right, within the Christian world. And, and we... We love to serve God, and we love, and, and we love to be active, and, and, and we want to be out there sharing our faith and studying the Bible with people. We show up for things, and we sacrifice, and we serve, and we give, and we lift each other up. And praise God, we should never we should never seek to lessen on that at all. But I know for me, I tend to look at that as, as righteous activity before God. And, and, I, and I just have to confess, I tend to look at prayer as... A supporting role in all that. I tend to look at prayer as, a, as an inactive service to God. But you know, that's, that couldn't be more unbiblical. You know, and I, 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 I have to repent of that, and then maybe you have to repent of it as well. Our Savior, our liberator, the, the, the one who led us out of slavery, Christ, Jesus, he, he urged us to pray. He urged us to pray. He said, God is longing to give you the kingdom. It's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He said, Ask and you shall receive. He taught us to pray. He actually gives step by step instructions on how to pray. It's amazing. And of course, he himself prayed uh, to God often. You know, prayer is perhaps the most active thing we could do, right? You know, and I'm always giving it short service. You know, I, my, my wife will always say, well, I'll, I'll be grumbling to her and she'll say, have you prayed? Yes, I'll pray. But, but i got to do something. Right? i got to do something. You know, prayer is something. And, and, and I just want to just kind of set the stage and, and, and you know, th- these midwives are heroes of the Bible. And, and Moses is certainly a hero of the Bible. And, and God is certainly a, the hero overall. But these prayers... These prayers of these groaning Israelite slaves, these humble prayers they 're heroic as well, but let us not forget that. Let us not fail to take that into our own account you know as we as we as we prepare to uh, launch into this three month study of Exodus as we prayer to, as we as we prepare to contemplate. The uh, the liberation that God has provided for us as we as we learn more and more and, and, and deep, more deeply and more deeply into the Book of Exodus and we and we steal ourselves for the mighty hand of God and, and we we commit ourselves to the service of our new master who has liberated us. Let's not neglect to pray, because this this God this this Almighty God uh, longs to hear from us. This God that that has saved us through his son, Jesus Christ, uh, is is watching. He's noticing. He longs for communion with us. And perhaps it's through that communion, through that prayer, that we will hear in the silence and that we will see in the darkness and that God will show us for sure the liberation that stands before us. Thank you very much.